Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby, and today I'm joined by Professor Christina Mobay. Professor Mobay is Professor Emeritus in Organic Chemistry at KTH Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. And uh, importantly for the conversation we're about to have, she is also the president of the European Academy's Science Advisory Council, or ESAC. That position makes her also a member of the board of SEPEA, part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism, and whose logo adorns this very podcast. Apart from those eminent distinctions, Professor Mobai was also president of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences until 2018. She's a fellow of the Royal Swedish Academy of Engineering Sciences, the European Academy of Sciences, and Academia Europea, and so on, and so on. You get the idea. Christina, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. So to summarize, I think it's fair to say that you're deeply embedded in the world of academies uh, as well as the world of science advice. It's that overlap I'd like to pick your brains on today. But first, just confirm my understanding. Since you were president of the Royal Swedish Academy, that's the academy that gives out the Nobel Prizes, right? Yeah. We are responsible for two Nobel Prizes, the one in physics and the one in chemistry. See, that's quite a claim to fame. So, And someone else deals with literature and, uh, and medicine. It's the Swedish Academy for Literature and the Karolinska Institute for Medicine. And I believe I was told once that peace is Norway. Peace is Norway, yes. Gotcha, okay. And sorry for being a, a fanboy, but do you have any involvement in choosing the prize winners? Yes, since I'm a chemist, so I'm involved in the prize for chemistry. But then in the end, actually, all the fellows of the academy vote in the end for the two Nobel Prizes. And also we have, as you know, a prize in economy, which is in the memory of Alfred Nobel, which is treated in a very similar way. Yeah, economy, of course, forgot that one. Okay, thanks for clearing that up. So as I said, I'd like to talk to you about academies and their general role. And I guess the Nobel Prizes are one of the more well-known examples of an academy's role in society. Um, but perhaps you'd like to kick us off with a general outline of what you see academies as all about. What do they do and why? Um, what, what we see in the academy here in Sweden, and I think this is very general, to uh, promote the sciences and strengthen their influence in society. So I think that all academies would say that that is their primary mission to do this. But then academies differ a lot. Some academies, quite many academies, have institutes, which means that they run research, particularly academies in the Eastern Europe. But I think this to strengthen the influence of science in society, and that can be done in many different ways, meant to have arranged seminars, conferences, and, and, and so, for either for scientists or for uh, the citizens in, in general to award science, which is um, very important also, to give out prizes, etc., which, as you mentioned, we do here, a very prominent one, the or two Nobel Prizes, but also to um, say to, to serve as a meeting place for scientists in order for scientists to be able to discuss different topics over different uh, disciplines and exchange ideas. And I think that is also very important. Then also, of course, science for policy. And I, I know that many academies in Europe are strengthening this. They are building up stronger mechanisms for science for policy. But policy for science, that is to influence how science is run, how it's financed and, and so, 
where the finances go to which areas and so. That's also a very important area for academies of, of science. I get the impression that people who don't already know about academies, people who are not in the in that world like you are, and to an extent I am too, I think these people either say, oh, I have no idea what academies do, or else they have a rather, stri- well, not a strange view, but like a narrow view. So for me, this idea you mentioned of a meeting place for academics is the one that definitely comes to mind. Um, as a Brit, if someone said to me 10 years ago, what do you think happens in academies? I would immediately picture a big wood panelled theatre in 1850s London where a man with a big white beard like Charles Darwin um, is holding up some specimen of an exotic species he's discovered and, you know, the great and the good of the scientific world are gasping at his discovery. It's all this kind of thing. And I think in a modern world where we have strong universities and strong research institutes, which are more in the public eye, which I think people understand more easily because they have more contact with them, there is a bit less understanding about the modern role of academies. Is that also your experience? But we still have some of this. Of course, that was much more in the, I mean, the old academies, also Académie des Sciences, old academies from 1739. So it's rather old yes. in, in a way. And that happened much more then, that scientists conveyed their messages and their, their new scientific discoveries. That happens now, but of course you can't cover everything because so much is, is done now, but you can give lectures and all this. But I would say that particularly the Royal Society have so much outreach activities, not only in London, particularly in London, but also in other places of, of the UK. Here we have some outreach activities, not to the extent that Royal Society has, because it's, it's a bigger academy. But of course, that the audience is quite limited anyway. We give popular lectures in in the academy here, like many academies do, and they are very popular. Yes, sure. So you're describing a slightly different niche in the academic world compared to uh, universities and research institutes and so on. If not totally different activities, at least different emphasis. And you know, universities also educate people. Yes. And do research. As I said, some academies have institutes, but that's, of course, a, a main issue of universities to do research also. Right. Although isn't that also a difference between different countries? Uh, I'm led to understand that in Eastern European countries, many of the academies are also pretty big research players. Yeah, that's true. Even in some more Western countries also. Actually, in, in Sweden, we had a couple of institutes that were taken over, I mean, deliberate by, by universities, because we thought that universities can handle that better. There are still a couple of institutes, one in mathematics. But of course, the people working in that institute, they have positions at the universities, but they work and they, they collect people from different parts of, of the world. So they come there to work together. That's called the Mitta Kleffler Institute, which is very well known among mathematicians. Okay, so that covers the, the general role of academies uh, in the modern world. Let's now zoom in on one aspect of that, which is the policy interactions. So you mentioned that academies have a mission to spread science, scientific understanding across society, and that includes obviously governments and policymakers. I mean, how that works differs from country to country, I'm sure, but there are also some commonalities and some cross-border activities. And conveniently, one of those is ESAC, of which you are the, the president, as I mentioned at the start. So could you give us a quick rundown of what ESAC is and what it does? Yeah, it's actually a network or association of 
all these science academies, the national science academies in the EU member states and Norway, Switzerland and the, the UK. And we provide, build science into the EU policy as well as the member state policy. And we have a council with representatives from all the national academies. And council meets twice a year and we meet in the in the country which will take over the uh, EU presidency for the next half year in order to be able to meet policymakers in the member states as well. Right. And when you say national academies, you mean specifically one per member state? Yes, yeah, so it's one per, per country. Okay. And why is ESAC a thing? Why do you exist? Yeah, the, the purpose of ESAC is to provide policy advice to the EU, but as well to the member states. So since we have activities in all the member states and our academies are active with policy advice, but our major goal is the EU institutions in Brussels, the, the parliament, the commission, the council. Right. But we also have a global outreach because the Inter-Academy Partnership, IAP, is a global organization and we are the regional network, the European network of IAP. And that works in such a way that at least a few of the, the ESAC reports have been taken out to a wider area. So other networks have been working with them. For example, the neonicotinoids, the insecticides that we worked with, which are detrimental for different kinds of insects, in particular for some kinds of bees. They are detrimental also in Africa, and a lot of work has been going on. And also there was a report on food and nutrition security that was also taken over and, and made a global report. And that's important also because um, science advice is needed also outside Europe, in particular in, say, in Latin America, in Asia, Africa. It's not built up in the same way. So that global outreach, I think, is quite important. Yeah, that's interesting. So if I understand you rightly, it's not just... ESAC kind of passing on the advice that it's already given in Europe to other countries as well. It's also a bit of more deliberate kind of capacity building elsewhere in the world. Yeah, exactly. Then there are, of course, other groups developing this, but they can build on the work that ESAC has made. Right. And ESAC's been around a little while, as I understand it. What was the driving force behind creating the network in the first place? Actually, it was a little bit more than 20 years ago. There were some members of a few academies. It was the Royal Society in UK, Académie des Sciences in France, the Dutch Academy and the Swedish Academy. They thought that a new science advice mechanism in Europe was needed because they saw that the mechanism at that time was, first of all, not completely independent, and it lacked also continuity. Each new commissioner made up a new type of science advice. So a discussion started then, and they thought it was appropriate to involve the national academies in order to have links to all the member states. And so this discussion was going on for some time, and then it was actually at a meeting in the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences in Stockholm, in Sweden, that the ESAC was founded. What, 20 years ago? Well, that, that's practically an eternity in science advice circles. And you've been doing this advisory job ever since, not you personally, but ESAC. Not completely in the same way, I would say, because in the beginning it was mostly 
commissions from mainly from the parliament. But then after a couple of years, it was recognized that it would also be appropriate to take initiatives to, um, to new reports, to new investigations. And that started after a couple of years. And at that time, also what we call steering panels in first in two different disciplines in environment and biosciences were established and a bit later also in, in energy. So these steering panels, so to say, collect expertise within the different areas. Okay. So you mentioned a couple of things that, uh, that are interesting there. So let's take them one at a time if we could. Um, I wanted to ask you first about this push versus pull question. So it sounds like Isak used to give advice on demand when it was asked to do so, and then it made the switch at some point to also giving advice on its own initiative. Yeah. In, in the beginning, as I said, there was a lot of commissioned work that ISAC did, which has become much, much less. So now it's essentially self-initiated work that is done. But in areas which we know are important for policy decisions. Yeah, I hear that. So it's, it's working on your own initiative, but not just with like noses buried in the science, as it were, also with a close attention to what will be of interest and importance for policymakers. Yeah, and what we think is needed also, which is, of course, important. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. And it's interesting that ESAC, which operates now, as you say, on its own initiative mostly, has also joined SAPEA, which is, as it were, almost kind of quasi-institutional in that it was created by the EU and operates on a, on a pull model where work is done in response to a request from policymakers. So I think it's pretty clear that both approaches have their advantages. But if I can ask the question, I suppose, quite crudely, mm-hmm. where would you rather be as a science advisor? Would you rather be on the inside and um, wired in, as it were, or on the outside and free? I think rather on the outside to have the freedom. And I think that that was what was recognized by Isaac also. But this forms, of course, a balance when, since we are involved in SAPEA also, when it's requested, not always, because that can also be an initiative from SAPEA, although it has more, more often been from the commission or from the chief scientific advisors. Yeah, that's true. And then the other interesting uh, element you mentioned is specialization. So the title of the organization, Science Advisory Council, suggests a, a general, you know, um, science advice in general. But in fact, you mentioned three specific areas, environment, biosciences and energy, I think it was. Yeah. And, and from the start, ESAC has not exclusively, but almost exclusively worked within these three areas because it's considered to be good to build up an expertise in, in a few areas. Right. So ESAC choosing to focus on these specific topics, that was a deliberate choice. It didn't just happen like organically or by chance. No, it was a deliberate choice that it was, um, I mean, consider that many policy decisions, many political decisions are taken with these, these areas. So, I mean, now you can see that it, it's evident because uh, climate change, biodiversity, etc., are very much connected to, in particular, to the environment, but also to the energy committee, to some extent also to the bioscience committee. For example, we have been working on on, um, climate change and health, which, I mean, connects to biosciences as well. Yeah, I see what you mean. They're quite broad areas for sure. Yes. And when ESAC 
takes on a topic, who does the actual work? Who are the scientists who write the reports? Of course, we have a, um, a lot of, of experts around Europe that we, we can use. So what happens then when it's decided about the topic for a new report or, or statement, then the academies are contacted and then they nominate experts. And then a working group is, is put together and they compile all the, the evidence and write a, a report, which is then, then sent for peer review via the academies. Changes are made and then in the end it's approved by all the, the member academies. So this is established procedure for this. Do you have any evidence about the impact your work has or, or has had in the past? Now, impact is so difficult to measure because, I mean, you can measure when, when we have a new report, we, of course, send out press releases. And you can see that if you measure impact that way, that many newspapers around Europe, even outside Europe, write a lot about this. So in that way, you can say that it's a big impact. But of course, impact in reality is when you affect decisions in some way, political decisions. And that's much more difficult to, to measure, I think. But this is anyway one thing in the, the member states. And then we rely very much on the national academies. And that differs how, say, how active they are. Some academies are, are very active. But what I think is also important is, I mean, the policymakers is the, say, the most important target for our policy advice. But I think also the citizens are important because it's important in a democracy that all citizens are able to, say, form their own standpoints in areas where political decisions are to be taken. And therefore, I see this as also a very important duty that we, we have. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought up communication because that's also something I wanted to ask you about. You said it quite nicely, I think, that it's a duty. And I think that's increasingly the sense I get when I talk to other science advisors too, that public engagement is really a, like a priority for them, second only to actually doing the, the policy advice part. Um, but just to make sure we're on the same page, perhaps I should check. You're talking here about telling other people about the content of the advice that you've given to policymakers. You mean to the general public or yeah. to... Yes, I, I thought that was what you meant, but I mean there is another possible element which is not so much uh, repeating to the public what you told the politicians on a particular subject, but like instead communicating about the notion of science advice itself, why it matters, how it works, and so on. Yes. So when you said it's a duty to communicate, I wondered which of those two you think is the duty. Now, both are actually very, very important. I mean, to teach how science works, the scientific methods. What's the difference between science and fake news, for example? That you need evidence. A scientist must be able to explain the basis for the advice. And that's extremely important to explain. But also the science in itself. I mean, we are concerned very much about climate nowadays. And nowadays, I mean, that spans over many years now. And... You may remember in 2009, there was the um, Renewable Energy Directive that came from the, the Commission. And what they wanted to do then was to I mean, increase the use of biofuels. And ESAC opposed to that. I mean, biofuels can have a role to play. But what you have to look at is the, the time for circulation, the payback time, as you, you could say. And what you see today is that 
forests are, are actually harvested in order to get biofuels. So it's extremely strange that this is not better understood today. But I think we know about the importance of forest and forestry, but we keep on going with deforestation. And I mean, so this is a big concern we have. Hmm. I can see this is a, a good example of an issue where the policy and the science advice basis have an immediate entanglement with other parts of society. Yeah. So I remember a long time ago when I was at school, we were taught about deforestation. Um, but this is long before biofuels was a serious thing. I seem to recall it was more about chopping down trees to clear land so that we could graze cattle for, for beef, for meat. Does that sound right or has the debate moved on? At least that happens. I think it's for cattle as well. I mean, there are several reasons for, for deforestation. But it's certainly, at least in, in America, the whole trees, all forests are, are harvested to get biofuels. But it depends on how long time it takes for the, the new plant to grow up. If it's 10 years, then it might be okay. If it's 100 years, then it's not okay. That makes sense. Well, so I find this an interesting example, like I said, uh, of, of the kinds of questions that come up when you engage in public communication as well as just giving science advice. Because it seems like it's one thing for scientists, ESAC or whoever, to give some advice to government. Um, the evidence shows that deforestation is having certain bad effects, so we should stop it. But when you add the extra element, the duty, as you put it, to communicate that advice also to the public, then that starts to look like a different kind of activity, like you're taking a, a political position, which is... Mm. Uh, Go on. No, I wouldn't call it political decision. I would call it scientific, scientific standpoint, because we have no agenda... I mean, no vested interest because these are just scientists. I mean, most members come from universities and have no financial interest. So, so this was a scientific standpoint. Yeah, that's entirely fair. I guess I was just trying to, to represent an outside perspective, though. And I'm saying this even though, as you know, a lot of my day job is also about communicating science advice to the world. So meaning to people other than the primary recipients of the advice. I'm just wondering whether you think Doing that kind of communication looks or, or could look to the outside world a bit less like a neutral attempt to pass on information about the advice and a bit more like lobbying. You know, part of the standard playbook for lobbyists in many areas is not just to pester the politician directly, but also to try and raise awareness and gather support uh, among the electorate, among citizens. I wonder if that's something you think science advisors legitimately should do? Or maybe I should ask more particularly, when ESAC does its public outreach, do you set out to advocate for your advice as well as just to describe it as a way to like improve impact? I mean, this is interesting. What is the difference between science advice and, and lobbying? Yeah. What ESAC does then is to compile scientific evidence and write a report of it. I mean, it's not running around in the corridors in, in Brussels, but to write a report with references to scientific literature. So that I would call science advice. And of course, like SAPEA also does that on issues where decisions are to be taken, or maybe where decisions have been taken already. This is, of course, challenging because there are so many financial industrial interests in biofuels. And so this has been a very controversial issue, actually. Yeah, sure. And I can imagine, especially in Sweden, uh, yes. a country made almost entirely of forests and lakes. Yes. Yeah. 
I mean, it depends very much on, on the topic. Many reports and statements have been very welcomed from the audience, from policymakers as, as, as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't doubt it. Okay. I want to ask you more generally about the challenges for scientists of working in policy. I think it's it's very obvious, especially in the last year, but maybe longer than that, I don't know what you think, that there are some quite difficult challenges to navigate in this kind of role. What do you see as the the big issues here? And do you think it's changing over time? You you have seen uh, quite recently during the pandemic now, during the last year, the challenges that, that we have when the science is, is not mature. I mean, there's a lot of things we don't know and science has a very, very much uncertainty, which it's all of us have, but, but right now. And then we have what has been coined as post-normal science, when decisions are needed to be taken very urgently, and there is a lot of uncertainties in, in the science, and stakes are high, high, etc. I think this has been a very challenging period because, of course, scientists have to be reliable, and scientists need to say what they or what, what we know and what is uncertain, what we don't know. But you have seen this situation that many scientists have forgotten this, and there have been quite aggressive discussions even. And I think that in, in this period, which you could refer to post-normal science, that is quite typical, I, I think. Yeah, so I guess you've got this combination of high levels of uncertainty in complete science, yeah. um, along with really high demand, urgent demand from policymakers for that scientific information in, in those same areas. Exactly. And I guess those two issues have been around for a while, but then on top of that, with COVID-19, we've got something new, which is very high level of public scrutiny. So it's no longer just scientists talking to politicians. It's almost like the whole world watching um, and discussing what they talk about. That's true. So it's a high pressure environment, really. What's your assessment of how the science advice community and the science community has held up under this kind of pressure? Uh, My impression, at least what I've seen around in the Nordic countries, is that the... the, um, respect for science, the confidence in science has actually increased. And I think that that is because scientists have shown that it's possible to understand a lot of the disease. It's also, I mean, the development of the the, uh, vaccines now, which have been done quite rapidly. And I think that the confidence has really increased due to to this. And people have maybe seen less of the, um, the different opinions from different scientists. That's interesting. So I don't pretend to have any broad perspective on this. I don't know how different things are from country to country. But certainly one complaint I've heard a lot is the opposite, actually, that science has struggled to maintain its reputation and and, and level of public trust mm. with the pressure it's been under. Now that people who previously didn't think about it very much are realizing that science doesn't have all the answers, that scientists disagree, that evidence can be unclear and incomplete or can point in different directions and so on. Mm. Um, so it's good. I mean, it's surprising, but it's good to hear you say that you see an increase in trust. I think this is due to all the achievements of science now, which people have regarded as extremely important, which they, of course, are. People can be cured to a large extent now, even if they are seriously ill. Do you think there are more general ways that science advisors can regain or, or maintain, depending on your perspective, uh, public trust? You mentioned getting results. That's obviously an important one. What else? 
and of course science itself, because those who produce the science, the scientists, need to do that in a reliable way, of course. And this is extremely important because people have to trust science and also scientists have to trust science. When you do new research, you have to trust what people have done before because you never start from, from start. And this is, of course, a simplification for science advice as well because we need to trust the, the results. But to teach the, all the students about research integrity, I think that is extremely important. And I do that a lot. I, I give a lot of courses, which I've done actually for some decades now, here in mainly Stockholm, but also around the country, or sometimes in other countries as, as well. Because this is crucial for science, that people can trust their results. The way that science is done and how it is reported is extremely important. And then the science advice, of course, build on this. Mm -hmm. And research integrity is about elements of how you do your work as a scientist. And what I teach mainly is about um, misconducting research and how to avoid misconduct, what it is and how to, to avoid. Research integrity is a bit wider. It's, I mean, how you conduct research in, in general. I mean, the, the importance of making the notes to, to um, do your experiments, if you do experiments in, in a proper way, etc. And report what you have done, really. Also, your mistakes and your failures should be reported. I see. And what about for science advisors? Can you imagine an equivalent code of conduct for a scientist to follow, uh, not necessarily when they're doing their research, but when they're communicating about the evidence uh, with policymakers? Now, I think what's important is to be, be, be fair, to tell what you, what you don't know. Because while sometimes scientists are asked about topics which are outside their areas, and then you have to confess that you are not familiar with that, that you can't re reply, not pretending that you are an expert. If you are a specialist on, on something and somebody asks you something else, then it can be difficult to tell that you don't know it. Yeah, I think that's one of those pieces of advice that's uh, often repeated, but less often actually followed. Easier said than done, I suppose is the phrase. So listen, this has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you for bearing with me um, as we've, we've jumped from the nature of academies to the specific work of ESAC and then to much more general reflections on science, science advice and public outreach. It only remains for me to say thank you, Christine and Mobay, for sharing your time and wisdom. Thank you, Toby. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learning societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. SAPEA is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation, and you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elizaveta Sushchenko. So I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.